my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and you are our redeemer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I'm curious. What is your favorite moment in the Christian year? In our celebrations, or maybe our, our practices, or our traditions at St. Aidan's, or the liturgical cycle that we observe, what is your favorite moment in the liturgical year? Advent. Advent? Just like the whole season? Uh-huh. Lent. Lent. Advent, Lent. This is a very penitential group this morning. It was like, you know what I like? I like fasting. That's what I'm into. Christmas. Christmas, Yeah. The Christmas celebration. Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday. Oh, that one is an intense. Mm-hmm. Yes. What were you saying, Mo? The Easter service? The nighttime one or the morning one? The Saturday one? Uh-huh. Yeah. Any others? So my favorite one is when, during the vigil service, I get to sing the exalted. Um, because I love the exalted. Uh, but there is a particular portion of the Exalted that gets me every single time. So I, I, I grabbed the altar book so that I could read it to you because, you know, it's not in the middle of the song. And so I probably won't remember the lines if I just try to come up with them off the top of my head. And I'm not going to sing them this morning uh, because this is not the night, right? 
But this is what we read. This is the night when you brought our forebears, the children of Israel, out of their bondage in Egypt and into the land of promise. You brought them through the Red Sea on dry land. This is the night when, with a pillar of fire, you banished the darkness of our iniquity. This is the night when all who believe in Christ are delivered from the gloom of sin and restored to grace and holiness of life. This is the night when Christ broke the bonds of death and hell and rose victorious from the grave. That part right there. I just, we could, you know, really, I mean, I enjoy preaching to you guys and stuff, but, you know, you could really just read the, the Exalted in place of my sermon anytime that, uh, anytime that you want to, and it would probably be a more fruitful exercise, right? But I love that, especially that portion of the Exalted. The entire song is beautiful, but I love that portion because it encapsulates our Christian faith. This is what the Christian faith is, that Christ has led us out of bondage, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, that Christ has dispelled the darkness and the gloom of sin in our hearts, and that because of Christ, because we have died with Him, we are raised with Him. That in Him we have life. Life that doesn't end. Life that doesn't end ever again. Because death is defeated and the power of sin and the devil are broken. We have been set free. Jesus has brought us out of bondage. Jesus has brought us out of darkness. He has brought us out of sin. He has raised us up out of the grave. For the kids that have coloring sheets, that's the picture on there. Jesus raising us up in Adam and in Eve out of sin. He has raised us up and given us new life in him. You have been set free. But here's that question that sort of hangs on the end of that phrase. You have been set free from what? We spent time last week talking about why sin is such a big deal. And specifically, we looked at the four different ways that sin affects us in our own lives. We call them the four alienations. That it creates separation between us and God. That it creates separation between us and our neighbors. That it puts separation between us and the creation that God has given into our care. And that it creates a separation between us within our own hearts. That every single one of those relationships that is supposed to be life-giving instead becomes, uh, it becomes a, a, a cesspool. It becomes uh, something that draws us away from who we were intended to be. That's the effect that sin has in our lives. Now, we are going to be reading from the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, for most of the summer. We're going to be reading from Romans starting a few weeks ago and all the way through into uh, the middle of September, I think, in our, in, in our lectionary together. The first time that I read Romans, the first few times that I read Romans, it felt really confusing was it like that for anyone else the first time that you read that? Because, I mean, it's a really long book, especially as far as like Paul's letters go. You have, you have the, the letters to the Corinthians, which are both really just mammoth works. And then you have this letter to the Romans. And, but, the, but, but the ones that he writes to the Corinthians, there's sort of a, 
like a, a, a flow in the, in, in the discussion that he's having. It, it makes sense. He begins talking about breakdowns in the community, and then he uses those to sort of begin talking about, well, this is what healthy life in, in God looks like. And he begins talking about the work of the Holy Spirit and what holiness looks like in, in the life of the church in, in, in general and in the life of individual believers as well. But Romans is different than that. Because the first time that I read through Romans, it seemed like there were two separate books that just sort of got mooshed together, right? You have the first eight chapters where he's talking about sin and about what my salvation looks like, how, how I'm saved. Uh, and then the last half of it seems to be like, uh, you know, talking about, I guess, how to get along in the world or like what my relationship is to the, to the world that's around me. There's this weird kind of interlude about election that I didn't really understand. And it was really hard for me to wrap my head around. And I didn't have a lot of resources, especially, uh, you know, early on in my life when I was a, a teenager in college, the first time I was really sitting down and reading through the book of Romans. It was hard to relate to because it didn't make sense. And then somebody mentioned something to me that changed the way that I interacted with Romans forever. And he said, when we read from Romans, we often read from it as though Paul is specifically writing this letter to me to help me, Lee, to understand my life. And in all of scripture, there is an element of that. The scripture is there for us so that God can speak to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Scripture is one of the ways that God reveals God's self to us. But not just that. Scripture is one of the ways that God is restoring all of those things that are broken to me. All of those four alienations are being healed in me because of reading Holy Scripture. It is a sacramental act. There is grace that we receive from God by the Holy Spirit when we meet him in the midst of his word. But the suggestion was, what if we read this, the, the letter to the Romans and we use chapter 3 as a frame for understanding everything else that happens? Because Paul uses a very particular word in chapter 3. And the trouble for us is oftentimes that we have these Christian words. And they have sort of big fuzzy definitions, but they all kind of just mean the same thing. Uh, they, they all just kind of mean getting saved. And that's, that, that, that's all that it is. This word that Paul uses is redemption. Redemption. And probably for most of us, when we hear that word, we think either getting saved. Or maybe we think like, uh, like uh, getting better. Sometimes we talk about a redemption story arc in a, in a movie or a book series that we might be reading, that there's a, a redemptive story because somebody is, something is being healed in somebody. But that word that Paul uses doesn't refer to somebody's heart. The word that Paul uses refers to the slave market. The word in Greek that Paul uses, redemption, means when somebody purchases a slave away from the market. When he says that what Jesus has done by his death in the forgiveness of sins is redeemed his people, redeemed a people for himself. What he is saying is that you and I have been purchased away. You and I were bound up as slaves and we have been set free. And if we hear that word in that way, 
the way that we encounter the rest of Romans changes. It changes the picture that we see Paul trying to describe to us about what our life looks like together as a community, what my life looks like as, as, as a father, as a minister, as a man, what it looks like for me to live as one of Christ's own. That whole image that Paul is describing changes if I understand it through the lens of I have been set free. I was enslaved and now I have been set free. Because redemption is what God's character has been about all along. From the very beginning, what God has been doing is rescuing people from the power of sin and death and the devil. From the very beginning. In fact, that's why when Paul talks about this, he describes that there's, it's like there are these two worlds. There's, there's the Adam world and there is the Messiah's world. There's Jesus' world. That these two worlds operate under completely different ways and they're ordered in a completely different way. But when we read from Genesis, when God calls a people to himself, he calls them out of another place and draws them to himself. And he does that again and again and again. And when his people are lost in bondage in Egypt, he calls out to them and he draws them back to himself. He leads his people. He leads them in Abraham. He leads them in Moses. He leads them by the kings. He leads them by the prophets. And he reveals in the person of Jesus Christ, that this is the kind of God that he has been all along, that this is a God who redeems his people. He sets his people free. But that's what God has been doing. Now last week, what we said again and again is that sin makes us into slaves. That is what sin accomplishes. But that's only part of the story. Okay, Sin doesn't only make us slaves. Because I'm not passive in that, right? It's not like sin just happened to me. One day I just woke up and I was like, oh, I got a sin, right? It's not, it's not a virus that I catch from somewhere. It's not a passive thing. Sin is something that I engage in. It's something that I give myself over to. It's not an accident, in chapter 6, Paul says this, No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That word that he uses there, present yourselves, it means give yourselves over. It means surrender yourselves. It says that I am handing over my control. And this is the truth of our lives. That our lives are always about handing over control to someone else. That's why sin is so destructive. We think about sin and, and we, we undersell how powerful it is. When we think about it in terms of, oh, well, I guess I messed up again. Or I guess I just failed. Or, or this. But Paul, when he uses the word sin here, is not, he does not use a plural word. He's not talking about sins. When he says sins, he's very clear about sins. The word that he uses here is sin. He intentionally is using this word sin. He means us to capitalize this word when we read it. That we give ourselves to sin. We become slaves to powers. And here's why sin is so very destructive. 
Because sin, by itself, Paul says, doesn't have any power over us whatsoever. Sin, by itself, is just over there, and it doesn't have anything to do, and it doesn't have anybody. But when we have given over ourselves to sin, not only does sin break us and ruin all of the relationships that we have, but sin turns us into its instruments. We, in sin, become the power of sin. That's what sin does. We become sin's power in the world around us. And so Paul says, stop presenting yourself. Stop giving yourself. Stop surrendering yourselves to sin. To become its instruments of wickedness. But instead, present yourselves. Give yourselves. Surrender yourselves to God. And become instruments of righteousness. Paul is saying to us that we don't live in that old world anymore. That world of Adam is gone. That world of Adam has been dealt with. That world of Adam has been conquered. The world of Adam has been defanged. In fact, what God has done is stepped into the world of Adam and filled everything that was broken and made it whole again. What God has done is stepped into that old world and everything that was dead has been made alive. That life, that world has been completely transformed. And what we as Christ's people, what we as God's children, what we as the church of God live in is a new kind of reality. It's a new kind of life. We live by the life of God. We have given ourselves over to him. Not just me, but we. We together have given ourselves over to God to become instruments of his righteousness. We have been reborn through the waters of baptism and are no longer the old creatures from an old creation. We've become new creations to live in the midst of God's new creation. He has given us a new heart. He has given us a new spirit. He has given us a new home. He has given us a new name. He has given us a new hope. This is what Jesus Christ does for us in the waters of baptism. You and I have been redeemed. We have been brought back from slavery. We have been set free and filled with a new life in Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright says the new life, the living life of God's renewed humanity is about a change of masters. We change the one that we belong to. That's what it means to belong to Jesus. We change the one who calls us his own. Because the truth is that every single person in the world, every single person from the beginning of creation until its conclusion has a master. Every single person that you meet has a master. But if we give our obedience over to sin, Paul says to us that it will only ever lead to our death. Right? The wages of sin is death. That's the only thing that sin can give to its slaves. It can't give life. It can't give hope. 
It can't give a future. It can't fulfill promises. The only thing that sin can offer is death. That's what life looked like in Adam's world. But Christ, the new Adam, has created a new world, has restored everything that was lost has made whole everything that was broken, has given life to those who were in the tomb. And obedience to God leads us, Paul says, to righteousness. To righteousness. That's what the Messiah, Jesus' new world, looks like. That's why I love the exalted. This is the night when all who believe in Christ are delivered from the gloom of sin and restored to grace and holiness of life. This is the night when Christ broke the bonds of death and hell and rose victorious from the grave. Our birth would have been no gain had we not been redeemed. We have been set free. We have been set free by Jesus. We have been set free by our baptism to serve a new king. Not a master who rules us through fear, but a new king who is our brother. A new king who is our Lord. A new king who is our shepherd. And this new king has given us His glory. He shares His glory with His brothers and His sisters. This King shares His glory with us so that we can reflect His glory. So that we can show the glory of God in the world around us. So that we can reflect His rule into the creation that He has given over into our care. He has granted us Peace, so that we can become peacemakers. So that we can proclaim God's peace over a world that has yet to hear and understand and hope at what that might mean. He has made us priests and given us the authority to intercede for one another and for our neighbors and for our community and for the whole of the world before the throne of God. He has committed creation into our care and he has justified us so that we can become men and women and sons and daughters who bring justice into the world. Who make the world into a place that reflects God's goodness, God's wholeness, God's truth, God's mercy. We have been made alive in Christ to share in his life forever and to share in that life with him and with his saints. Paul writes, you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, but the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.